Welcome to Leaders and Legends of Online Learning, a podcast dedicated to the experts. Thank you for listening. Each episode will be learning from the world's leading thinkers and practitioners in online learning and linking to ideas relevant to online teaching, working with online learners and digital education. You can listen to the experts and check their profiles and link to some of their work on our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com. I'm Mark Nichols, the interviewer in this episode. You'll meet Professor Phil Dawson in this episode. Phil is an international expert in online assessment and the flipped classroom with a broad interest in online education. He's Associate Director for the Centre for Research and Assessment and Digital Learning, or CRADLE, with Deakin University in Australia. So I'm talking with Professor Philip Dawson, who's Associate Director, Centre for Research and Assessment and Digital Learning, or CRADLE, with Deakin University in Australia. Phil's specialty is assessment in higher education, with his most recent work focusing on the changing nature of cheating. Uh, Phil, it's great to be talking with you. Yeah, really wonderful to be here. Thanks, Mark. Excellent. Eh? Can we get started with a brief overview of your career and publications? Yeah, so I started off um, in the early 2000s doing computer science. It was my, my first true love. I loved it. I ended up graduating with a degree in sort of artificial intelligence and cybersecurity. I started wanting to do a PhD in robotics, but was swayed over to really education, which was my sort of passion. I'd been I'd been teaching since in my undergrad years because during the dot-com boom, you just couldn't get anyone to teach computer science. So us undergrads taught it <laughs> some of the time. And I'd been involved in some peer learning programs and mentoring and that sort of thing. So I ended up doing a PhD in mentoring. From there, I gradually shifted over into doing work around oh, sort of higher education assessment had some really wonderful, uh, almost chance connections with some people. Uh, one of them really early on was Professor David Bowd, who's now my, my boss at Deakin in Cradle. Mm. And I guess Dave got me really excited about assessment. So worked in sort of teaching intensive roles, in academic development roles, and now I'm in a research intensive role here at Cradle, where I really focus on researching higher ed assessment, but always in that digital context, because for, for us in sort of Australian higher ed at the moment, assessment just always is digital. Mm. Yeah, it certainly mirrors the situation here in New Zealand as well, where we're trying to actually become a lot more innovative in our assessment practice. And I think technology gives us many opportunities, but do you think we're making the most of those? Look, I mean, I, I think we're on a journey. I, th I mean, I think the pandemic's really accelerated some things, uh, which, which is really wonderful. But there's also been that sort of uh, emergency remote teaching thing where we've we've kind of lurched to online rather than done a carefully planned move there. Mm. That, that's led to some wonderful innovation. And, you know, I've, I've loved watching what people have been doing. Uh, some of my work's in feedback, for instance, and I've loved seeing people embrace some of the wonderful online feedback technologies, you know, where we can't have a conversation with the student face-to-face. -face. We might do that feedback conversation online. We might provide them with pre-recorded audio feedback or all sorts of other things. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of room to move. But we've, I hate to use the word disrupted. It's, it's a gross word, but we've been disrupted and it, it's led to some good things. Mm. So, Phil, much of your work is actually quite recent. So can you tell us a bit about the themes and things that have been coming from your research, uh, particularly those which you think are, are most pertinent today at the moment? Yeah, OK. So 
I guess my first sort of breakout publication uh, was a 2015 one about the flipped classroom. Um, that one's just huge. And it came out of a conversation with a colleague where we weren't exactly sure what the flipped classroom was. So we thought, let's get a definition going and let's try and have some theory around it. So we've done some work particularly around motivation, because I don't know about you, but my experiences with flipped classroom, <laughs> uh, getting motivation for that out of class work can be really hard. So, so motivation and cognitive load. So how a flipped classroom might help learners to sort of manage and self-pace things a bit better. So some work there. There's some work around how academics do assessment design. Uh, so there, my close colleague, Margaret Beerman and I really observed that there were a lot of idealised best practices in assessment that people just weren't doing. And we thought it's not a case of people not knowing it. There's got to be something more to it. So we went and talked with a lot of academics about, you know, why do you do assessment the way that you do it? So really trying to then build some tools and resources to support people in the pragmatic realities they find themselves in. So that's the assessment design decisions work. Um, done a fair bit of work around feedback as well. So they're really trying to focus on learners in feedback rather than people who provide the feedback message people who seek out feedback messages and use them and have to deal with the tricky emotions of it and whatever. And then most recently some work on uh, what I'd call assessment security, which is the topic of my most recent book, uh, which is around how can we deal with really cheating and how can we balance the need to be positive and educative and proactive against the need to sadly be a bit adversarial. So that's sort of my main themes in my work. Mm, great. Look, I'll put you in a bit of a situation here. Imagine there's a, an educator who's um, been assessing in a fairly traditional way. Uh, suddenly, as, as the internet opened up to them, what sort of advice would you give them in terms of how they might change their assessment practice? Where, where do you think they ought to start? Oh, this is great. So I guess the first thing I would say is I'd go with the authentic assessment idea in general. You know, let's look at the authentic practice of the thing that you're assessing, that's probably digital. There, there are a few things that, that we do now that are not at all digital. I can say particularly in higher ed, but in education more broadly. So really trying to look at the everyday practices. What are the tools that people use? Um, how can we try and reflect that a bit more in the way that we assess? Uh, I've done some work on authentic feedback recently. How can we try and mm. do feedback practices in similar ways to how those feedback practices work in the world of work. And a lot of feedback is digital now. So yeah, really that authenticity angle. While doing that, I'd say keep an eye out for how um, in online assessment, students now have cheating services aggressively marketed to them, pushed to them. They don't necessarily seek it out, it's pushed to them. Mm. And try and yourself become aware of that. What, what's what's cheating like in your world now? Great. So um, I think often traditional educators too are caught in the tests and exams sort of paradigm. So are there possibilities of moving away from that now that we're in the online space, uh, preferably in ways that are invigilated, um, although maybe without the use of invigilation services? Are, are there any innovative approaches that you've seen that really do inspire you and think this is the way of the future? Tests and exams are a really interesting one. I think we probably need them, but we probably need less of them. So, you know, I think a lot of contexts where we use them, we kind of overuse them. 
Um, we need them when we need to be really, really sure that the person we're awarding this qualification to is capable of certain outcomes. And we believe that a test is the best way to do that. I, I don't think tests are the best way to do that all the time, though. So, yeah, you know, something I'd love to see us do more of is interactive oral assessments where we sit down with people and have a conversation or where we Zoom with them or, or whatever other technology we can use to have that synchronous conversation about the work. That's not a new thing at all. I mean, in some countries, that is the pinnacle of assessment in degrees. Uh, when I used to teach computer science, we would just sit down with students and talk about their code that they'd written with them because that was, that was our way of really knowing that they can do the work. So it's okay they do the work at home. That's fine. But then they come in and we have a chat and I say, oh, can you explain to me why why'd you make this choice here? As not only a sort of assessment security approach, it's also just a great opportunity for uh, an ongoing feedback dialogue about the work and learning and growth. So I'd, that's something I'd really love to see us use more of. Now, now, when I suggest it, people say, I don't have the time for that. And I really respect that. But if we go back to this thing of trying to secure the moments of assessment that really matter for your, your degree or for whatever other qualification it is you're awarding, securing those ones and caring less about securing the other ones, you then have time because you're not trying to police people in every single act of assessment. Yes, yeah, almost like a conversational viva voce. And, and I suppose too, there are some teachable moments that can come from that. So it could actually be an element of feedback and also assessment and teaching. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Phil, you'll know uh, that universities all around the world now are struggling with online cheating. And, and you mentioned how these services are now reaching out to learners. It's not a case of them having to seek it out. Um, I'm sure many of them get approaches all the time in terms of, yeah, let me write your assignment for you. In your book, you talk about different approaches to this. Perhaps just a brief overview of the different ways in which universities look at these things and the advice you might give in general, apart from, of course, buying your book. Yeah, so I, I think there's sort of our two main categories of approaches, and, and I'd call them sort of academic integrity approaches and assessment security approaches. So mm. academic integrity is the, the positive mission. It's um, it's values-based. It's about trying to develop students so they they can do the work themselves and also that they they want to do the work and that they value it. And this matters for all sorts of reasons. Yeah, first and foremost, we want to graduate students who don't cheat, not because we were watching them, but because they didn't want to cheat. We, we don't want to graduate <laughs> people who, who only act ethically when they're watched. So, so th that really matters. And, you know, there's connections to uh, things like medical students having more, more academic integrity problems going on to have more professional integrity problems, that sort of thing. Mm. So we do need those. And, you know, approaches in that space include developing students' capabilities with some of the technical skills like you know, referencing or, or that sort of thing. But it's also kind of an, an education about ethics and it's a conversation educators need to have with students, a continual conversation, not a one-off conversation about ethics in scholarship and ethics in, in work and all of that. So, so modelling and talking about what we do. So there's that. The unfortunate thing is that that won't do the job on its own. So even your most effective approaches in that space really don't tackle the bulk of the problem. And we know the problem is big. You know, um, a recent paper by uh, Guy Curtis and colleagues showed that about one in 10 Australian higher ed students admit to having contract cheated at some stage. You know, they've yeah. paid someone else to do their work. 
so that the size of the problem is big. And if we're only dealing with small amounts with these positive approaches, it's not enough. The other side is the assessment security approaches, which is where we sadly act in that slightly adversarial way. We try and look for evidence that students have done the work themselves and sort of conversely that they haven't cheated. And there, you know, we're doing things like using text matching software. Um, we are setting those invigilated tasks where we're watching students. Um, we might be using some of the more advanced artificial intelligence stuff that's coming through, like the um, Stylometrics software that compares students' writing yep. over time yep. and says, you know, this piece wasn't written by the same person as those ones. Mm. So it's so, something I've become really fond of lately is um, trying to think of it like a Swiss cheese model. So like many layers of imperfect approaches with holes, yeah. but when we layer them together, hopefully enough of these layers are going to help us. Um, mm. And that, you mm. know, other people, I think Rundle, Curtis and Claire came up with the first sort of idea of a Swiss cheese model, but it's, I think it's the best way because we get stuck on trying to find the perfect approach yeah. and there is no perfect approach. Mm. Well, Phyllis, now towards the end of 2021, um, the world is still, of course, reeling from COVID. It's been a hugely disruptive uh, couple of years. What are your observations about online education at the present time? Not just necessarily uh, refined to assessment, but across the board. I think we're at a stage where there are threats to online learning in the form of people generalising about the sort of emergency remote teaching experience to online learning in general. Yeah. Uh, so I I shouldn't do this, but I get in arguments on Twitter with people about this a fair bit, uh, <laughs> where people say blanket things about online learning that really only apply to pandemic online learning. So in my own patch of sort of cheating and assessment security, there has been a rise, no denying it, there has been a rise in cheating over the pandemic. But I don't think it's fair to attribute that to online learning in general, because what you've got is students who didn't necessarily want to do online learning and teachers who didn't necessarily want to teach it mm. without the specialist capabilities in online learning delivery, uh, without the designs that you know, often take a long time to get really great. So I think the most dangerous thing for online learning right now is that we generalise from this experience to online learning in general. Mm, yeah. Now, now, Deakin, of course, has quite a strong distance education heritage. So how do you think that actually influences your perspective of what online learning might be? Because um, I, I think a lot of people don't actually have that same sense of history or possibility of online education. Can you talk a bit about Deakin's own approach here and how that might have changed your, your answer there in terms of ERT? You're right. Deakin really does have a history first as a distance provider. You know, it was set up in the 70s as a, you know, predominantly distance provider mm. and you know over time distance remote has always been a big part of it my first full-time academic job was with Deakin uh, in 2009 where I taught students across seven different uh, regional sites through video conference and it was it was wonderful and that was just the mm. DNA and there were support structures and expertise in learning design, that, that was just wonderful. I think something that Deakin does really well is we've invested in that learning design capability yeah. and learning design, educational design, instructional design, whatever you want to label it. I, I don't mean to dismiss the nuances. <laughs> um, that, but I think we've learned that that really matters. And especially when you're dealing with scale, 
it matters even more. Mm -hmm. Um, Investments in learning design matter for small classes, but once you're dealing with, um, you know, one of my my colleagues, Jackie Broadbent, will teach 2,000 students in psychology some years, and when she's dealing with that scale, relatively modest investments in learning design or, you know, for her feedback design, she designs wonderful feedback sequences such that every student gets audio feedback that's what we call mm-hmm. ipsative based on, you know, where they were and where they're going and all that. You can do that when you've got 2,000 students in a way that you couldn't with sort of 30 students mm-hmm. in terms of the design. So I think it's it's our investment in design. And, yeah, it's also a bit of uh, sort of corporate history there and knowledge. Mm, great. Can I pick up on that? Um, just, just that whole conversation about scale. So you mentioned earlier that ideally there'd be that one-to-one uh, conversational viva voce uh, type interaction with a student. What about your colleague with the 2,000 students? Um, how might she perhaps draw on uh, technology and modern assessment practices to make sure that, uh, that the assessment still has integrity uh, but is also quite genuine for the student? Uh, Jackie in particular has published some great papers about doing these sorts of things at scale. So it's mm-hmm. it's really wonderful. And we've, um, in some of our uh, projects, uh, if people go to feedbackforlearning.org, that's, you know, all just the words, um, yeah. they can see a case study of how Jackie does that feedback at such scale. I guess it's that if the resourcing scales, not even linearly with the number of students, but if it still scales with the number of students, you're looking at the the pieces of it that scale at a factor of zero, you know, things like mm-hmm. developing wonderful instructional materials. Uh, another thing that Jackie does is uses intelligent agents on the learning management system, which are these things that monitor different things students do or different um, achievement levels or whatever and provides targeted guidance. Yeah, that's something that takes investment up front, but scales at a factor of zero because it's no harder for 100,000 than for one student to have those. Mm. So there's investments in those and then the bucket of resourcing that's left over in the, the class that I'm thinking of here goes towards those sessional teaching staff to get them to really spend time and also not just spend time, but um having some quality assurance on their activities too. So some of the feedback that they provide to students itself gets feedback. So Mm. there's people listening to just snippets of that feedback and providing helpful feedback on top of that. Yeah, so it's about looking at uh, a class and thinking, what bits can I get to scale at a factor of zero so I have this big bucket of resourcing left over that I can do really high-quality, high-impact pedagogy with. Mm, excellent. Good framework. Phil, uh, the research you'd most like to see, if you had an unlimited budget and you could actually fund any research of your choosing, where would you invest? So I think if, if I go back to some of the stuff on the flipped classroom, um, together with some some colleagues from the University of Hong Kong, uh, led by Tim Hugh, we did a big second-order meta-analysis on the flipped classroom where we got all of the existing meta-analyses that combine all of the studies people knew of, and we combine all of those. And we also went and found all of the original studies. So it's it's yeah. an epic thing. I guess from that, 
I'd love, we found out that, yeah, flipped classroom seems to work. I think I can say more confidently than most things in education that flipped classroom works, but we can say very little with confidence about the particular choices within flipped classroom designs that seem to work. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to see ah, just a bunch of studies where people experiment with different decisions this much out of class work, you know, a really big amount or a really small amount of out of class work, um, different types of active learning activities within the class. So I'd love to see that. So that's one thing. And my second thing I'd love to see mm. in the assessment security world, there's just very little research in terms of what works. There's a lot of claims, but there's very few studies. Um, you know, I, I can tell you, even with all the funding in the world, there's some studies that I don't think we could do, uh, and that, that troubles me. So at the moment, I'm still, and I've been trying for years, to get a remote proctored exams vendor to let me do a study where I try to cheat in remote proctored exams. <laughs> and I've approached several, and I'm not going to say which ones because I've been given legal advice not to say which ones, mm. but I have approached several, and I am yet to get any to agree to let me do that. So in the assessment security world, we have a lot of claims about what works, but not a lot in the way of independent research that says yes or, or no or under what circumstances. So it sounds like a bit of experimental design, um, also an opportunity to put the vendors to the test. Yeah, yeah. I um, A number of years back, I published a paper called Five Ways to Hack and Cheat in Bring Your Own Device Exams or something like that. Mm. Uh, and yeah, I've, I've done the work on some platforms to try to cheat and it was possible. Now, now I don't want to set up, you know, these things have to be perfect or they're useless. Mm. You know, because, again, we go back to that um, uh, Swiss cheese model and, yeah, yeah. you know, they just have to be a useful layer. But we need to know how many holes there are. Mm. Well, Phil, uh, really, really interesting talking with you. There have no doubt been many influences on your scholarship. Can you name uh, one or two people who you'd recommend as legends of online learning, one whose work is significantly influencing you now uh, and someone else who you think might have an important perspective to share? Look, I'm, I'm going to go with uh, Neil Selwyn as the mm, sort of yep. influence. Um, and Neil might be a bit of an odd pick because Neil is more of a sociologist of education, whereas I'm much more of like a, a learning and teaching pedagogy type researcher. Mm. But it's really helpful to have someone like Neil sitting on the outside and asking those sociologist type questions of things. So, you know, Neil's mm. early work, uh, he wrote this paper that I really liked uh, in praise of pessimism in educational technology. And it, it just made me go, oh, wow, I have bought into what, what's sort of called the positive project of educational technology, this idea that, you know, technology is ultimately a good thing for education. And I'd, I'd bought into that. And Neil helped me to really kind of question that. Uh, and then all the way through to some more recent work on remote proctored exams particularly. And sort of, you know, I'm interested in, do these things work? But Neil's zoomed out to sort of what's the socio-technical, ethical sort of perspective on this. And he does really robust work because there's a lot of um, kind of wishy-washy alarmist work in the remote proctored exams space. Uh, but Neil's work has that sort of strength of a, a proper sociologist doing the work. So I, yeah, yeah. I love... 
I love Neil's work there. Mm. Um, for the second one, I guess I'd say Sue Bennett. Um, Sue Bennett, she's, I believe she's now the uh, Dean of Education at the University of Wollongong or, or some mega faculty that's bigger than that. Yeah. Um, but Sue has for a really long time kind of combined a little bit of the stuff like what Neil does. Yeah, she did some great work on the digital natives early on when that used to be a thing. We yeah. we had these sort of myths about students uh, being naturally great with technology and that they would transfer over to education, but Sue did great work showing, no, that's not necessarily the case. Mm, mm. Um, she's done really great work on learning design, one of the, the real leaders in that space. And, and she's also someone who really manages to bridge that gap between being able to operate in the high theory space, uh, but also being super practical and pragmatic about how we get things done in education. So, yeah, Neil and Sue, they'd be my picks. Excellent. That's a powerful mix. Uh, Phil, it's been really an education talking with you. Thanks so much for the work that you're doing. And uh, thank you, too, for being a leader and legend of online learning. Thank you so much. This has been a really fun conversation. You can learn more about Phil and his work from our website. That concludes this episode. Be sure to go to our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com, to follow up on this episode's guest. You'll also find links to others whose ideas continue to inspire and teach online learning professionals, and you can subscribe to future interviews. If you know of a leader or legend we've not yet talked to, please do drop us a line at onlinelearninglegends at gmail.com. 